It's a good morning. It is a good morning. And um, yeah, so I uh, just want to give you guys an encouragement. Uh, it may not sound like an encouragement, but I want to give it to you anyways, and I hope that you're encouraged by it. Um, <clears throat> you know, uh, you know, we are we are fasting this month, and and we are just uh, this month we are seeking the Lord and we are consecrating ourselves to Him afresh and 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 just for Him. You know, we're not seeking Him to to get power. We're not seeking Him uh, for revival in this moment, though we absolutely hope and we pray and we would love for God to do those things. But we have to remember that God is actually worthy, that Jesus is worthy of our devotion and our worship and our time, even if we get nothing out of it. We get no other benefit out of it because he is just that good. Now, we know that from that, God blesses and, and that God um, gives power and God does all these sorts of things. But I just want to encourage you as, as we, um, <clears throat> there's only one more Sunday um, in the month after this one, and uh, some of you are breathing a sigh of relief um, <laughs> that, uh, that this will soon be over. Um, and I just wanted to encourage you, uh, for those of you who are feeling particularly weak, or it has been burdensome, or it has been hard, I just want to encourage you, that's the point. That's the point. It says when we, you actually humble yourself before the Lord, those are the ones whom he will use. The scriptures talk about humbling yourself, actually seeking the Lord and humbling yourself. And, and when we actually engage in a deliberate practice of weakening ourselves through fasting and, and seeking him and doing these hard things, um, it's there that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. So even though for many of you, I know this has been maybe discouraging and it's been hard, and I just want to encourage you that it's actually God's power that's made perfect in your weakness. And that perhaps what we've been doing for so long is we've been relying so much on our strength uh, that we've forgotten how to rely on God's strength. And in this moment, I would just want to encourage you to actually relearn that lesson if you've forgotten or if you've never learned it in the first place. Um, God is working and God is on the move in, in our midst and in your heart. And um, I just want to encourage you in that, that um, it's almost over. <laughs> it's almost over. I'm sure you can keep going if you want after this month. Um, so I don't know many who would probably take up that option, uh, but I just want to encourage you, it's almost over, and we actually just trust that God is doing um, a lot of really good things, uh, both in us as individually and in us corporately as well. Amen? Yeah, I kind of believe that. All right, good enough. All right, if you got your Bibles there, I'll get you to open up to the book of Galatians. <clears throat> We're continuing in our Galatians series this morning, and we are in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to be going um, from verse 1 all the way through to verse, where are we going to go down to? Verse 14. Verse 14. So I'm going to read it, and then we're going to give a quick recap and all those sorts of things. So here we go. Galatians 2, starting at verse 1. Paul says this, he says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. 
I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to these people for even a moment, so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Now, from those recognized as important, what they once were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised, since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me to the Gentiles. When James, Cephas, and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, and agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only that we remember to... I remembered the poor, which I had made every effort to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone... If you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? And we're gonna we're gonna <clears throat> we're gonna just finish it there for the time being. And so, quick recap for those of you who maybe missed last week, or maybe have just forgotten last week, um, where we're up to at this point. So, Paul Paul has written to the Galatian church because there have been some challenges to Paul's ministry there in the Galatian region. Uh, Paul has gone through, he planted, <clears throat> he planted these churches in Galatia, he ministered to them, he taught them, uh, they've been growing up faithfully under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, um, <clears throat> and, then, and then these other people have come in, these false brothers have come in, and they start to pervert the gospel message that Paul had actually preached to them. And Paul is writing to challenge this teaching that is happening in the church. And at the start of this letter to the, to the Galatians, he has to address a couple of the issues that have arisen, a couple of the accusations that these false brothers uh, have used against him, used against him to undermine Paul's leadership, undermine his authority, and undermine the message with which he preached. The first of that the first of those <clears throat> was that Paul is not a genuine, Paul is not a genuine apostle. Paul is not a genuine apostle. Um, he doesn't have the authority to preach or teach what he is actually preaching and teaching. The second one is that, well, Paul, Paul, look, Paul's mostly right. Paul's mostly right, but he gets a couple things wrong. And so these false teachers have come in and, and, and are most likely saying, well, Paul's mostly right, but he's, he's misunderstood a, a couple things. You see, um, he's kind of softened the message just a little bit. See, in order to actually be accepted by God, to be saved, what you actually need to do is, is not just accept Jesus, but what you also need to do is you need to become circumcised and, and start obeying the law of Moses as well, and, and basically convert to Judaism in order to be saved. And Paul is challenging, Paul is challenging these assertions made 
by these uh, false brothers, these false teachers in the church. And, and the way in which he challenges these assertions is with a testimony. And we talked about this last week, how, how rather than making a lot of really great arguments out the gate, what Paul does is he shares his testimony about how he actually became, or how he came to be the apostle that he is, and how he received the message which he received, which is by a direct re revelation of Jesus Christ. We know from the book of Acts that... Uh, uh, when Luke recalls it, that Paul, uh, on the road to Damascus, had an encounter with the, the Lord Jesus who knocked him off his donkey and, and, and led to Paul's conversion, uh, where he's now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And Paul says, look, <clears throat> I, I, was, I wasn't commissioned as an apostle by other people. I wasn't commissioned as a Paul. I wasn't sent out by some local church. I wasn't sent out um, by the other apostles. My authority is not derived from their authority. In fact, my authority is actually derived from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It is Jesus Christ himself who has set me apart as an apostle to the Gentiles. And so he gives this testimony. This is what happened to me. This is what happened to me. I encountered the risen Lord Jesus, and this is what he did to me. And secondly, the message which he preaches, the message which Paul preaches, does not come from some tradition that he inherited from someone else. Which means that it's very unlikely that the message that he's preaching is something he's simply misunderstood or misheard from someone else. Uh, if uh, We use the example of Apollos in the book of Acts, where Apollos, who apparently a phenomenal preacher, he's preaching there, um, and Priscilla and Aquila are hearing his preaching, and they have to, they have to pull Apollos aside and go, hey, Apollos, like, you're mostly right, but we, got, we just got to fix up a couple things here that you've got wrong, right? Paul's not in that same camp. Paul's received his message directly uh, from Jesus Christ himself. And this morning, he, and this morning here in Galatians 2, he is going to be he is going to be continuing his testimony and adding uh, more testimonial evidence to the fact that what he is saying and who he is is actually true in counter to what the false teachers have been uh, what the false teachers have been saying. And so he's going uh, to give an account of a subsequent trip to Jerusalem, because remember, in Galatians one, he went up to Jerusalem after three years. He went up to, and he hung out with Peter for a bit. He met James, the brother of Jesus. Um, so he met those two, and then he goes off. And Paul's going to now give a subsequent uh, account of the, a time that he and Barnabas went up to Jerusalem. And then he's also going to give an account of this uh, confrontation that he had with Peter, who is an apostle, uh, over this particular issue. And so let's jump into our text here this morning. So Galatians 2 verse 1 says, then after 14 years, I went up again. So 14 years, Paul has gotten saved. He had this encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. It says he goes off into Arabia for, for about three years. Um, what he's doing in Arabia is shrouded in mystery. We don't actually know. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of believing that, that what Jesus is actually doing in that moment is giving Paul three years of tutelage in the same way that the other disciples got their three years with the, with the risen Lord Jesus. I'm sure it wasn't exactly the same, but we know almost nothing about, we know almost nothing about Paul's time in Arabia. Only uh, we get glimpses, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 11, which we always read when we, when we do communion. Paul says, Paul says, I received from the Lord 
this, that this was the tradition, that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. He says he actually received that from the Lord. And Corinthians was written before the, the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were actually around. So we have to assume that Paul's not simply getting this from the Gospels, like he's just read that and gone, oh, okay, that's what happened, let's continue this. He says, I got this from the, from, uh, I got this, uh, from the Lord. And so there's, I have a suspicion that something is happening there in Arabia where Paul is actually having... Uh, this time of reflection on the scriptures, meditating on what the Lord Jesus has taught him and receiving revelation about the gospel and clarifying points of uh, doctrine and all these sorts of things. But after 14 years, Paul's been going about his business preaching this gospel for 14 years. <clears throat> but then something happens. Now, most commentators you read on this, they, they want to be so staunch and say, Paul never had any doubts. Paul never had any doubts. Right, because you know maybe they have uh, maybe an over idealized view of who Paul was, and but it says that I went up to according to Revelation and presented to them a gospel I preach among the Gentiles. He said I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. Now Paul was very certain about himself. Paul always presents himself very confidently, but what it appears had been happening is these false teachers had been coming in, and perhaps their voice had gotten so loud in the church. That Paul was like, I am, I am very confident of what I have over here, but there's all of this chatter that is coming from these other false teachers, and they're claiming to come from the apostles in Jerusalem. Now he's he's already been up to he's already been up to Jerusalem. He's chatted with Peter, he's chatted with James. You would have assumed if there was any issues there, they would have corrected it at that time. But after 14 years, after 14 years, this issue is still kind of going on. And so whether, or not, so, so whether or not Paul does have doubts or he's just like, I just want to get clarity on this, he goes up to Jerusalem by a revelation of the Lord. And what he does is he goes up there and he lays out his gospel. He lays out the gospel that he preaches to those who are leaders in the church in Jerusalem. Because right, remember, these false teachers, these, these Judaizers, they're claiming to have come from Jerusalem under the authority of the Jerusalem apostles. All right, we know this because Paul will say, Paul will say later on in chapter 2, um, uh, where it says here, he said, For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. Well, who's James? Well, it's obviously James from Jerusalem. So these men are going around carrying James's name with them, saying they are teaching merely what the Jerusalem apostles are teaching, in that in order to be faithful to Jesus, in order to be saved uh, with this gospel, you need to be circumcised, you need to obey the law of Moses, and you need to become, uh, enculturate yourself as a Jew, um, as God's chosen people. And so Paul, Paul, he, he hears this, um, he's challenged by this, uh, he's obviously confronting this in the churches that he's ministering in. And so after a revelation from Jesus, he goes up to Jerusalem and he lays out, he lays out his encounter, he lays out his encounter with the leaders who are there. Um, now there's, here's what the aftermath of this encounter in Jerusalem is. The first, the first piece of evidence, Shay, if you can put up the, put the slide there, the first uh, piece uh, the first thing that, that Paul cites after this meeting, he says this, he's that, that even Titus is not compelled to be circumcised. Now, why is this important? Why is Paul raising this? 
Why is Paul raising this in this moment? Because here's the, the crux of the issue. The crux of the issue is these people are saying, look, in order to be saved, you need to be circumcised. And Paul's like, well, guess what? I went up to Jerusalem, the very people, to the very place where this message has been coming from, apparently. I brought a Greek guy with me, a Gentile with me, and in that meeting, in that meeting and in that encounter, they all knew he was a Gentile, and after that, they didn't say anything about him getting circumcised. They didn't bring it up. He wasn't compelled to be circumcised at all. So if it is the case that the message that you are bringing does carry weight and does carry authority, obviously that's just, it's just not true because they obviously don't believe what you're telling these Galatian churches that they actually believe. Paul raises this as a point of evidence to, to actually undermine the Judaizers and say, look, if this was such a critical issue, such a critical issue of salvation, why wasn't Titus compelled to be circumcised? Why wasn't Titus compelled to be circumcised? The second point, the second point Paul raises in the aftermath of this is that the apostles in Jerusalem don't add anything to his message. They don't add anything to his message. He says in verse 6, Now from those recognized as important, What's the, what they once were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to me. I just want to make a quick comment on that where he says, for those recognized as important, what they once were makes no difference to me. God shows no favoritism. You, Paul's not, I don't think Paul's trying to be a jerk here and trying to just downplay like the importance of the 12, right? So some people, some people think that's what it is. Paul's like got an attitude problem. He's got a chip on his shoulder. Like he's like the, you know, the unlucky 13th apostle and he's just angry at the other 12 because they were first. Like, I think what Paul, you got to remember what Paul, Paul is, is trying to defend himself against being seen as some lesser apostle, right? He's trying to defend himself against being seen as illegitimate. And so when he says these things, he's like, look, <clears throat> I went and I shared it with those who are recognized as important. Okay, but really what, what they are is not, God doesn't show favoritism here, okay? God is not showing favoritism, but I just want you to know I did go to the guys who were important, okay? I, I went to the guys who were recognized important. They added nothing to me. They added nothing to me, which completely undermines the claims of the Judaizers, is that Paul is just misunderstood. Paul is just, Paul, oh look, Paul's well-meaning, he, he look, Look, I understand Galatians, you know, you've, you've heard this, this gospel, you've heard about Jesus, the Messiah, you've, you've heard how his kingdom has come, you've seen signs, wonders, and miracles in his name, you've seen, uh, you've, you've even experienced the new birth, but I just, look, we, we just need you to know Paul, Paul left a couple things out. He probably just misunderstood, um, his message was incomplete, to receive the full salvation, to be saved, you, what really needs to happen now is you, you actually need to come and, and, and convert. You actually need to be circumcised. And you actually need to become part of the Jewish people. And what Paul does is he raises this and says, well, firstly, when I went there, Titus wasn't compelled to be circumcised. And secondly, when I actually laid out the gospel that I preached to them, they didn't say anything. They didn't add anything to me. They didn't correct the message which I have been preaching these almost 20 years now. He says, on the contrary, 
They saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised, since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. Just a quick comment on that. That does not mean that there are two gospels. There is not a gospel for the Jew, and there is not a gospel for the Greek. All right. <laughs> what he's commenting on there is the apostleship that they have been given is that the 12 apostles, the 12 apostles were given a special apostleship to the Jewish people, and Paul is brought in as this 13th apostle to actually bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He's not saying that there's one gospel for this class of people and this gospel for the other class of people. There is one gospel, which we belabored, which we belabored when we were in the introduction here in chapter one, when he says that there, there's, there is no other gospel, okay? Um, <clears throat> and so he, he comes and he gives this, he gives this, he says, Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. The apostles in, in Jerusalem, they didn't add anything to my message. And in this testimony, in this testimony, Paul completely undermines the testimony of the false teachers. Completely undermines what they had been saying about Paul throughout the Galatian region. And which just adds further confirmation that what Paul is saying is true. You see, <clears throat> what's important to remember here is Paul's original claim is that he didn't get this from somebody. He didn't get his message from somebody else. He received it by a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the beautiful thing about that is, is Paul is not just now out here preaching whatever he wants, and, and there's all these disciples who actually walked with Jesus while he was on the earth before his resurrection and his ascension, and they're preaching something else. That Paul received this revelation, and when it actually came time to compare notes... It was the same message. It was the same message. Which means that what Jesus had taught, what the, what the, the first, what the twelve had been taught, what they had been teaching, what they had believed, was actually congruent with this revelation that Paul is claiming. It adds credibility to Paul's claim that the revelation he received is actually from heaven. And so at this point, I'd actually like us to turn to Acts chapter 15. To Acts chapter 15. <clears throat> now, Acts chapter 15 recounts the, what, what's called the Jerusalem Council event. Uh, where, where, where the church actually gathers to talk about this issue. Now, is what Paul is recounting here in Galatians 2 his account of what Luke would record here in Galatians 15? Um, there's a lot of evidence to say that it is. And then there's also some counter arguments to say that maybe this was not the exact same event. But the reason why we're actually looking at it here this morning, is because it's dealing with the exact same issue. This is, not just Paul's, this is not just Paul's beef. This is something that the whole church had to deal with early on in the piece, very early on in the piece. Because you see, in Luke records, in, in Luke uh, 15, he says, 
Um, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Uh, I had to turn the page for that. I, I was fairly certain that's how the sentence finished, but you know, you never want to just turn the page and realize you were completely wrong. Uh, so some men had come down from, <laughs> from uh, uh, Judea and they were teaching that unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Sounds very similar to the people that Paul is dealing with. Sounds very similar to the people that Paul is dealing with. So here we have, very early on in the history of the church, we have these people who are already in the church, who are already moving about throughout the various church plants as the gospel spreads out. There's people already moving out and about throughout the, the region, teaching these sorts of things. And it says, after, uh, after Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul's there, Barnabas is there, they're arguing and debating with these guys over it. So the church in Antioch goes, look, Look, here's what we're going to do. Paul, Barnabas, we want you to go up to Jerusalem, and we want you to go talk to the apostles in Jerusalem. We want you to sort this out. And so that's what they do. So they come, and, and, and we, have, we have recorded here in Acts chapter 15 the very first ecumenical church council, the very first one called the Jerusalem Council. And the main item on the docket, the main item on the docket for this particular council is what are we going to do with Gentile Christians? What are we going to do with Gentile Christians? So they're having argument, they're having debate. Uh, it says, uh, but some of the believers who belong to the, fair, uh, to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. What this tells me is that even from the very beginning, even from the very beginning, there have been denominations in the church. <laughs> no, not, not denominations, but definitely factions. Definitely factions. Definitely sharp, strong disagreements between believers. Now, these, these were part, people of the Pharisee party, but they're in the church. So presumably, these guys were Pharisees who have now decided Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. We are going to follow him. But sometimes old habits die hard. Sometimes old habits die hard. And so the church in Jerusalem takes counsel. The Pharisee party is pushing for the Gentiles to be circumcised and told that they have to obey the law of Moses. Uh, Peter stands up. Peter stands up and he gives testimony about how he has witnessed Gentiles becoming born again by the Holy Spirit without circumcision. If you will recall uh, when when. Peter uh, goes and visits uh, Cornelius the Centurion in his household, and he's not even done preaching the gospel, and the Holy Spirit lands on the whole household, and they all start speaking in tongues, and P Peter just has to stop and go, okay, well, well what's, <laughs> obviously the Lord has come, the Spirit has been given to these Gentiles, what's to stop them from being baptized? And so he baptizes the whole household. Uh, Paul and Barnabas then come and they give evidence, they stand up and recount the working of God among the Gentiles through signs and wonders and miracles. And then James stands up, well it doesn't say he stands up, I'm, I'm taking poetic license there, but he begins to speak, I like to think he's standing. Um, you know, if, if that's you know, a big doctrinal point, we can discuss that later. Um, James starts speaking. James starts speaking. And he expounds from the scriptures about how this was always what God promised. This was always what God had promised. 
is that the Gentiles would be included. And so he says there, he says this in verse 19. He says, therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. But instead, we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual morality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses had had those proclaimed him in every city and every Sabbath day. He is read aloud in the synagogues. Out of this council, out of this council comes a letter. Comes a letter. Now, the reason why there is some debate about whether or not Galatians was written before the Jerusalem Council or after the Jerusalem Council is because of this letter. Because if this letter had already gone out to the Galatian region, then why would Paul need to write? Why would Paul have needed, needed to write? And the letter says this, from the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard from some, some without, since we have heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you, uh, send them to you along with our dearly beloved uh, Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision, and ours, not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. So the verdict... The verdict when the church came together in this council was that they would not place heavy burdens on these new Christians. Now, you do see that they do have some guidelines here. They do have some guidelines here. But it is a very different tone from you need to obey the law of Moses. It's almost like the tone of it is you will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. You see, the tone of it is not you must obey these things in order to be saved. It is New Christians, you new Christians, you are just young in the faith, you're learning how to be faithful to God. Here's some things you should probably avoid. Here's some things that are going to be helpful to your walk. Avoid food offered to idols, sexual morality, and, and, and so on and so forth. It, it, is, it is almost like a pastoral, it's almost a pastoral uh, encouragement rather than a hard and fast command that if you, that if you do these things, you cannot be saved. And so this is, this is the end result of that. Now, what do we take away from all this? What do we take away from all of this? There's a few things I think we should take away, not only from the Jerusalem Council, but also from, from Paul's account here in Galatians. One, the first thing is this, that just like the beginning of our story, in the opening pages of Genesis, that there was a serpent who sought to enslave humanity so that so in the opening chapters of the story of the church, we see the same thing. We see the same thing. The church is maybe 20 to 30 years old at this stage. That's it. 20 to 30 years. And already, already, there is corruption creeping into the church. Already, 20 to 30 years. That's, that's all it takes. And presumably, they'd been there for a while. If, if you'll notice... At the Jerusalem Council, these people of the Pharisee party 
They seem well embedded in the life of the church. They seem well embedded in the life of the church. And it's only when this actual issue comes to a head that the church actually has to go, hey, guys who have been with us for, I don't know, however many years, presumably maybe even from the beginning, what you've been teaching is actually wrong. What you've been teaching has been wrong. And so what it shouldn't surprise us that if corruption and error and these sorts of things have been in the church from the beginning, it shouldn't surprise us that we find the same sorts of things happening today. It shouldn't surprise us. Beautiful thing about that, though, is that now some 2,000 years on, we have been able to see the grace of God time and time and time and time again bring his people faithfully back to himself. Time and time again. He is so good and he is so faithful. So good and so faithful. You know, as, as I'm saying this, I'm actually reminded of, I'm actually reminded of of Don and Lillian's testimony, and I, and I hope you guys don't mind me sharing a bit, but um, Don and Lillian were Jehovah's Witnesses for 25 years, about that, and I know you came out, and I know the year you came out because it was the year I was born. <laughs> it was not that long ago. <laughs> But I remember you guys telling me how at that time in the Jehovah's Witness Church that there seemed to be something that God was stirring where a large portion of people seemed to all at once kind of come out because all of a sudden there was this conviction of the Lordship of Christ and, and, and how the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society like had come out so strong that they were, they were baptizing in the name of the Watchtower. <laughs> is, is that correct? Yeah. They were baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the, and the Watchtower Bible Tract Society. Yeah, the Spirit directed, yeah. And so, and there was this reaction from the people that go, no, this is wrong. And so many people came out of the Jehovah's Witness Church at that time, and, and many, like yourselves, walked into a local Baptist church that was in the middle of a renewal. You know, God loves Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. And he is faithful, and he is faithful, and he is faithful. And we should never give up. We should never, we should never give up hope. We should never stop praying for those who are enslaved to a religiosity and in the bondage of that slavery. Because God is good. We've seen him do it. We've got, we've... The beautiful thing about being 2,000 years on in this story is we have such a track record now of God's faithfulness. You know, we don't just have to point to God's faithfulness in the Old Testament. We have that track record too. But we have 2,000 years of church history of seeing him move. Now, it's not always in our timing. It's not always in our timing. Oh, how we wish it was always in our timing. But we have a track record of God's faithfulness to release people and, and to give grace and to free people. That's the first thing I think we should take away from this. And the second thing I think we should take away from this is that we are all susceptible. We are all susceptible to deception. And that's why we need each other. That's why we need each other. 
It's why we need the whole body of Christ working together. I want you to consider Peter and Barnabas. Paul in Galatians 2 will say, uh, from verse 11, he says, but then Cephas, remember Cephas is, is, is Peter, um, Cephas came to Antioch, and I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined the hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. For when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, you who are a Jew live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, whether or not this incident happened before or after the Jerusalem Council, again, I, there's maybe a case either way, but if even Peter, one of Jesus' inner three, could be led astray. Now, remember, Peter's well-meaning as well. Like, isn't Peter's, Peter's not just like gone off into, you know, adultery. He's not gone off into all forms of sin and all that sort of stuff. Peter, Peter, who has been a, a, a faithful Jew all his life, who has been a faithful Jew all his life, when he's encountered by these Judaizers and they're saying, Peter, Peter, you know, you know that you're not supposed to eat with Gentiles. We're Jews. We're not supposed to eat with Gentiles. Yes, they can be, but we should still be separate from them. You know, we should still be distinct from them. We are still God's holy people. And Peter's like, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm giving poetic license here. I'm giving Peter the benefit of the doubt that he's simply trying to be faithful to God. But he's then encountering this fear, this fear from these Judaizers who are trying to enslave him, trying to enslave him again to the rituals, to the practices, to, the, to the, keeping the commands of Moses in order to justify yourself before God. And, and Peter falls prey to it. And Barnabas does too. And it seems like the only one who's talking any sense in the room at that moment is Paul. And thank God Paul sees what's going on and confronts them to their face. The takeaway from this should be this, is that we are all susceptible we are all susceptible. I remember, I remember when I first got saved, and, and mine, mine was not a gradual conversion. Mine was like a night-to-day conversion. And I always say this, like, I felt like a completely new person. I felt like I had been completely transformed. Now, after nearly 20 years of walking with Jesus, I, I, I now know how untransformed I was, but thank God that I'm more transformed now. Hopefully, I have the same reflections on myself today as I do in, in 40 years' time, but... But I remember, I remember being so transformed, and I remember the first thing I wanted to do the night I got saved was I wanted to go out, I wanted to go out to the pub, and I wanted to tell all my friends about Jesus. That's the first thing I wanted to do. I was so excited. I was so pumped up. And a well-meaning Christian pulls me aside and says, you can't go to a pub. There's demons there that will make you drink. Now look, probably a high likelihood that there are demons at a pub. I was a bit indignant that they, I, that they thought that these demons would make me drink, you know. But I was a new Christian. I was just like, 
what do I know? <laughs> what do I know? I just want to be faithful to God. Like, like that, that was my heart's desire. And here is somebody who I'm presuming is an older, faithful, you know, you know, more Christian than me. They've been Christian for at least longer than I have. They came in the doors Christian this, this evening. You know, I walked in unchristian. I'm out. I'm, you know, they're at least that far ahead. They probably know better than me. So I didn't go. I didn't go because, because they had said, no, you can't go there and you can't do that because there's demons there that will make you drink. Now, thankfully, that, you know, that, that I, got, I got over that, you know, that because I carry the, the spirit of God within me, I don't, I don't actually need to fear those sorts of things. But it's those sorts of things, like, like we're all susceptible to little enslavements. We're all susceptible to little bits of religiosity. We're all susceptible to it. So it's important that we should walk with humility. Careful not to think so highly of ourselves, your grasp of God, your experiences with God, and what He's up to, that you end up falling because of your pride. We always want to be correctable. And we also want to always be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. You know, may, maybe some of you would remember that there, there's a time in Pentecostal circles where dancing was a sin. There, 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 there's a long-standing tradition in many Baptist circles where alcohol is a sin. Now, I don't know what David was doing when he danced before the Lord. He was obviously offending God. And I don't know what Jesus was doing when he was drinking alcohol, when he was drinking wine, um, obviously offending God. Um, that's a joke, by the way. I, 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 feel like <laughs> I, I feel like I need to clarify sometimes, again, because, you know... <laughs> There's all sorts of these little things, these little enslavements, these little enslavements. Now, there's a difference between a personal conviction from the Holy Spirit and a command that's placed on you by your religious social circle, all right? I have met God-fearing Christians for whom drinking alcohol is a sin. That's their, that's their genuine God-given conscience from the Lord, and they don't put it on anybody. They don't put it on anybody. And I have met other Christians who it is their genuine conscience that drinking is a sin, and they will make comments to you if you order a lemon-lime bitters that that's Christian compromise. You see there's a difference between the two? There are some things that the Holy Spirit is going to give you convictions about, right? There's going to be some things that the Holy Spirit will give you convictions about. And I would say it is a sin to violate your conscience. Do not violate your conscience. That is an unhealthy thing to do. Even if your conscience is woefully misinformed, I'm being serious. Do not get in the habit of doing, the, doing something your conscience tells you is wrong. Okay, even if you, it turns out later on you are woefully misinformed, it is better to obey your conscience. That, 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 that thing, that thing inside you that is sensitive to right 
and wrong. Allow the Holy Spirit to correct it. Allow the Holy Spirit to teach you. Allow good scripture teaching to, to, to begin informing that and, and maybe changing that. But do not violate your conscience. But also, at the same time, don't put that on somebody else. Because this, this has been, Paul has had to deal with this issue many, many times. It, when, he, when he writes to the church in Rome, he talks, he talks about this. Those who were Jews, who were so used to their, their customs of, of what they could eat and what they couldn't eat, they were getting upset that these Gentiles were coming in and they would just eat whatever. And they would just eat whatever. You know, they, they would eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols and then sold in the market because that's where you got your meat from. Like, the, like, the, like they, didn't, they didn't really have butchers back then. It's like you went, you sacrificed the meat in the idol, they chopped it up, took it down, and sold it in the marketplace, which is obviously an offense to a Jew, but for a Gentile, it's like this is what we've always done. And Paul writes to them and says, look, don't violate your conscience, but recognize that you're weaker in faith, and so you have these restrictions, but don't, don't, don't look down on those who have that freedom. And then he also says to those who have freedom, don't try and destroy the faith of your weaker brother. Don't try and destroy the faith of your weaker brother. So this has been an issue, again, that's been happening from very early on in the piece. But I want you to be aware. I want you to be aware. Because the reason why we're preaching through Galatians is because I want you to have a biblically informed, Holy Spirit-cultivated discernment for how we actually walk in this world. How we actually walk in this world. And so I want to just highlight a few different ways in which Paul might identify. Well, I mean, Paul, Paul's not here, so it's probably unfair for me to actually put Paul's name to these things. I'm going to identify some things which I think, which I think Paul might agree with me on. Okay? And if you meet Paul in heaven one day, and he's like, no, you just you go with him. All right? <laughs> but here's, here's some more obvious ones. Here's some more obvious enslavements and entanglements. Large, large organizations like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, um, old school Seventh-day Adventists. When I say that, I mean, I mean the old school Seventh-day Adventists. If you meet um, like a modern Seventh-day Adventist person, church, they're probably just, you know, kind of like Hillsong Light, but they meet on Saturday, okay? Old school Seventh-day Adventists made very hard and strict rules around Sabbath worship and very hard, strict rules about things like vegetarianism and, and, and all these sorts of things, right? Again, that's an enslavement. That's an enslavement. Modern Seventh-day Adventists seem to, seem to have had, in my experience, have, they like, well, this is our conviction, but you can do you. Like, as in, that's that sort of thing. And so that's why I say old school uh, Seventh-day Adventists. So, so things like that, those are probably more obvious, more obvious things. Slightly less obvious um, enslavements. Uh, things like the King James Only movement. Um, there, there's, there's a strong movement, and not so much in Australia, but definitely in the United States, that says that each language should get their own translation and only one, and the King James authorized version is the translation for the English for the English-speaking world, and you can only use the King James English, uh, the, the King James uh, Bible, otherwise you are living in sin. That's, that's an enslavement. That's an entanglement. 
Other things might be, other things might be elevating people who elevate their own theological system over and against everybody else. Right? So, that, so much so that when they speak to you, they're like, oh, well, brother, if you were only just being faithful to the scriptures, you would believe what I believe. Like the, the sort of attitude where, where you're meant to feel guilty, you're meant to feel perhaps a bit of shame, maybe you're meant to feel a little bit ignorant, and the goal, the goal is to bring you into the fold. The goal is to bring you into the fold and to make it about a belief system or about a particular church or about a particular movement that they're a part of and everybody else, they're just not doing anything right. That's a bit of an enslavement. Downright sneaky ones. <laughs> Downright sneaky enslavements. Is maybe you've got that friend who's like, you shouldn't go to movies. Don't you, don't you realize that, you know, Hollywood is, is fueled by the demonic? You shouldn't go to movies. Now, Hollywood probably is very much fueled by the demonic in, in, in many ways. But there's also a lot of good stuff that comes out of Hollywood. And there's a lot of beauty that comes out of some really good movies. Um, I'm not a massive moviegoer fan myself, but the people who make movies are still image bearers of God and are still capable of creating beautiful and good things. So it would be an enslavement. It would be an enslavement for, for someone to be like, hey, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do that. And then for the sake of that friendship, you're like, oh, man, I don't want to offend. I don't want to offend this guy. I, I couldn't think of a name off the top of my head that's not already in this room. Um, that's probably a more sneaky enslavement. Or, or maybe... Or maybe there's, there's, there's some people who we've experienced this where um, you know, you'll get a message and they're like, hey, we just, we just really feel like you just need to know that um, certain things like having rainbows in your home or unicorns. Or like my daughter's very girly, super girly, and I love it. <laughs> I love that my daughter is a girl. But she's super girly, loves dresses, loves unicorns, everything is pink, everything is sparkly. But sometimes people will go, oh, like, isn't, don't you realize, like, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't allow your children to, to watch movies that have fairies in it. Or, or you shouldn't allow them to have a fairy on their book bag. Or you shouldn't allow, you know. Those, those are, those, you're like, man, like, oh, like, what, what is that? What is that feeling? It's that subtle, subtle spirit of control. It's a subtle spirit of control that's seeking to set up a standard in your heart that in order for me to be faithful to God, I must make sure that my daughter never has a rainbow on her book bag or fairies or anything like that. It's a subtle standard that gets set up that says, oh, unless you're like me, you're not faithful to God. Unless you're like us, you're not faithful to God. Now, we do have healthy standards about what is sin and what is not sin. But remember, we're not, not doing things in order to justify ourselves. Does that, does that grammar make sense? 
We're not not doing things to make ourselves justified before the Lord. We're not sinning. The reason why we don't want to sin, the reason why we want to live holy lives, is because sin is destructive. Sin is what leads us away from the Lord. Sin is what hardens our hearts to Him. That's why we don't want to sin. That's why we want to receive correction. That's why we want to pursue Him and consecrate ourselves to Him. And we maybe do want to leave certain things behind. Maybe we do want to leave social media behind. Maybe we do want to leave the vast majority of movies behind. But not as a way of justifying ourselves before God, but as a way of giving ourselves more fully to him. I'm going to butcher this quote. <laughs> it's from Elizabeth Elliot. And who she is and why she's important completely escapes me in this moment. But please let it land. She said one time that anything, anything that hardens your heart against the Lord is sin to you. And that's not the exact quote, but I hope you get the gist. That's why we pursue holiness. That's why we don't want to sin. I remember, remember, it's always, it's always because we want to please him. It's always because our heart's desire is to be for him. And, and some things, there are things in our world and in our lives that when we engage in them, it takes us away from him. But we never want to be enslaved to religious systems, no matter how small they might be, that set up a little barrier and then goes, hey, Jesus plus not doing this thing is what's going to make you right with God. And this is what Paul is fighting against. This is what Paul is fighting against. You would think, you would think Paul in everything he's said and how hard he's fought here in the Galatian church and in Jerusalem, that he would always be against anyone ever getting circumcised. Acts chapter 16, he circumcises Timothy for the sake of the mission, so that Timothy would be accepted amongst the Jews, right? Paul's like, it's fine so long as you don't think this is your justification. <laughs> That's what the crux of this is. That's what the crux of this is about, is that we are righteous. We are brought to God by God's grace alone. We are justified before him by his grace. It's a free gift to you and I. It's a free gift to you and I. And the moment we erect any sort of barrier, we pervert the grace of God. We pervert the grace of God. I'm going to invite the worship team back. This is not my water bottle. Um, so um, I'd love for you to stand.
Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd be moving upon people's hearts. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be removing idols, removing idols from us, that you would be removing those little enslavements that we've given ourselves to, that that our hearts use to uh, justify ourselves before you. Holy Spirit, we want a conviction from you about how you want us to live individually and corporately want that a genuine conviction. We don't want to be enslaved to any other standard except for your conviction, Holy Spirit. I pray you be freeing people. I pray you be freeing people. Freeing people from lies that have been spoken over them. Maybe it's from leaders that they've had in the past who have made them feel like they're somehow less Christian because they didn't live up to some standard. Holy Spirit, I pray you be freeing people of those lies in Jesus' name. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would be reconvicting hearts that your grace is free. It is freely given. It is freely given, and all that needs to be done is to receive it. The Lord Jesus, your sacrifice on the cross would be sufficient, because it is sufficient. Father, that you would pour out your love into our hearts afresh, particularly for those who are struggling, particularly for those who are struggling.